Welcome to Blood and Business. I'm Bethany. And I'm Cassie. Today we're taking a visit to the cemetery to remember a part of American history whose grave is still warm to the touch. As children, my sisters and I went to a show, but our kids will only hear tales and myths of the animals, the ringleaders, the tents. You may mourn their passing, or you may disagree with the ethics of the entire idea and be glad that this chapter has come to a close. This sibling set founded the longest reigning circus dynasty America will ever see. They are the The Ringling Brothers. Last episode, we left off where they were just starting to figure out what kind of show they wanted to put on. They were just starting to have that like first little taste of success in America. And after that highly successful 1889 season, the Ringling Brothers had about $1,000 to their name collectively, and they were still doing everything themselves. So they were doing like the tent setup, tear down, Louise, Albert's Wife. wife, was still cooking for them, and... Everybody was, like, in the show. Like, everyone had roles in the performances and everything. So it was very much still, like, a family gig. Mm -hmm. They were also decorating their tents with lithographs, like, basically big photos of, like, wild animals and stuff, even though at this point they still didn't have any animals. They just had, like, horses, right? Correct. Yeah, they didn't have, like, tigers or anything like that. But they had photos of the tigers (laughs) to advertise. And... Louise, the one who was cooking for everyone, Al's wife, she was also sewing all of the costumes. Like, it, she was a rock star. Yeah, it was all hands on deck. Yeah. Everyone had their hand in a little... Everyone had, like, multiple roles. Yes. After sending money for employees to travel from their hometowns to Baraboo, getting ready for the opening day of the next season, they had drained the last of their bank account and were once again flat broke after fixing, like, all the repairs from last season and getting um, some new equipment. It wasn't all a wash, though. They didn't have any cash left, but they did actually get to buy their mom and dad a house in Baraboo, which is, like, parallel to the Walt Disney story. Mm-hmm. If you haven't listened to that one, that one's really, really good, so go listen to that. But I feel like it's a rite of passage for entrepreneurs, especially siblings working together. To, to buy like, their parents a home. Yeah. For sure. So I thought that was cool. So going into this next season, although they didn't have the cash, like we said, it was kind of like a good spot mentally because they got to to give that the house to their parents. And they also had learned a lot from being out of the road. They had set themselves up to put on a bigger, better, more elaborate show, which means a higher ticket price and more room to actually turn a profit. So they were in a pretty good spot. The Ringling Brothers also had one huge advantage that none of their competitors did. They had each other. There were so many of them who each had a different skill and were totally different people, even though they marketed themselves as like a bunch of Siamese twins. We'll talk about that later. (laughs) They were very different in their personalities and their skills. Al picked the acts. Gus finally joined them in 1891, and he managed advertising. Otto was treasurer. Alf did the publicity. Charles produced the show. John arranged all the transportation, and then Henry attended each performance, and he was also kind of like their head of security, and so he stood at the front door and watched the ticket takers and people coming in. But arguably, their biggest advantage was probably the undying loyalty and trust of your own blood. Their nephew commented that, at first glance, his uncles seemed as alike as seven Siamese twins. There's a famous picture that they use on their letterheads and stuff, and it has the profiles of each of the yeah, five original brothers. Mm-hmm. It's so aesthetically pleasing. It's, it's really so cute. cute. But they kind of played up in that image how similar they looked. It wasn't a true representation of how alike they actually looked. Mm-hmm. They actually looked pretty different, um, especially in their body type. But they all had these big distinct mustaches that they all were required to have and then in the drawing they kind of turned all of their heads so that they would look you only had the profile yeah Yeah. and it was easy for them to get away with it too because it's back in the 1800s there's no paparazzi for Mm -hmm. like they these people were so freaking famous the circus was a massive deal they don't sound like i don't know i just view them as like the owners of the circus or whatever but they were famous personalities as well 
So the similar appearance was so purposeful that even Gus and Henry, when they ended up joining the circus because they weren't part of the original five, when they did join, they forced them to literally grow mustaches. But that's pretty much where the similarities stopped. They all had really different personalities and they actually didn't really look that much alike in person. It was made to appear that way by only showing their heads, their profiles on top of one another stacked. It was like a really inaccurate picture of them in real life and they ranged even just in size charlie was about five eight and then henry was six three and everybody else was kind of variously scattered in the middle i think that that is so smart we know that like aesthetic and branding yeah are really important and the fact that they kind of like toyed with their appearances to make them look like siamese twins they literally that that does do something like psychologically like your interest is already peaked something's peculiar about it yes exactly even when you just look at a pair of twins you're like you have to stare for a second and they were in the circus business so it's kind of like a sideshow attraction and And it's also it makes you do a double take yeah exactly and it also like makes people remember you more if you have like some weird aspect about yeah for sure and i'm sure in post too like i'm just thinking about if i walked like walking in new york city or something and i see this poster with seven identical people or very similar people you have to stare for a second and think like is this the exact same person just and it's right. just like a cool art piece yep or are these seven different people mm-hmm. and and then it makes you stop and read and i think that they knew what they were doing they definitely knew what they were doing So another way that they were different was that they actually kind of each went their separate ways while not traveling with the circus once they started to become more successful and money gave them the choice to do so. I will go through kind of everyone's business role and then I'll tell you a little bit about their personality, where they liked to live, what they liked to do, all that. Okay, so this is seven, eight years into their having their own show. Circus Act, okay. Mm -hmm. So let's start with Albert, the oldest. He was the equestrian director, which sounds like he was just in charge of the horses, but it actually meant that he was like the head honcho over everything. I don't know why they called it that. I think maybe like back in Europe, in the very beginning of circuses, the horses were the main thing. And so Mm -hmm. the head of the horses was the main guy. But... I don't know. You That's think it would be circus like circus lingo, I guess. <laughs> you think it would be like a lion tamer. Yeah. It actually did fit his personality and role, though, because he he was in charge of the horses. And his biggest act that he was known for was when he actually did have 61 horses in the arena at a single moment. This was his dream first, and he was known to everyone on the lot as Uncle Al. He staged the show. He dreamed up all the big, popular acts of their like later years in their career. And then he also stood ringside at all of the performance, and he kind of kept everyone on time with his whistle blows. Al lived in Baraboo his whole entire life, again, with his wife, Lou, and they had that house that everybody would come back to on the off-season in the very early beginning of their career before everyone had money to, like, go do their own thing. Mm -hmm. And she's that can-do-it-all Rosie the Riveter awesome lady. They never had any kids, but Al did have great pride and consideration for his hometown, so he made sure that he spent all of his money in Baraboo, and he helped build up the infrastructure of the city. He kind of takes on that, like big brother role you know what Mm -hmm. i mean i'm sure that they were like very well respected and probably very famous in that town too because they're like the entire economy of Mm -hmm. that whole freaking place and they're the one who put it on the map that's cool though that he like stuck to his his roots and especially when this is a time where new york is like booming people are moving to hollywood and he had the money to go literally anywhere Mm mm-hmm He's also said to be the most circus circus man out of all of the brothers, which I think is adorable. Yeah. <laughs> Gus was the second born and the most gentle of the brothers. And he was one of actually the last ones to join mm-hmm. the circus crew. He had a strong love for animals. And once he, when he was a kid, he brought a bear cub home, literally built it a little like den in their backyard. And it lived there for like months and months and months. These kids are wild and like, <laughs> yeah. what in the world? Half of them are freaking home, like living on freaking Yeah, the like streets. running away. Then uh, the other ones are bringing bears bear home. <laughs> also, their mom has had to have been so relaxed i mean i'm sure having seven boys forces you to kind of like let go of control but yeah. she is definitely does not sound like a type a can you imagine no. if your kid brought home a bear cup and you just like let it you're like fine you're like sure. can live in the backyard like what 
But anyway, he was self-educated and for a long time he worked kind of off on his own doing the carriage trimming. So he kind of had like that individual personality before he – well, individual identity, I guess, before he uh, was the last one to join the circus. Yeah. Were any of them educated? You said that he was self-educated, but did any of them go to school? I guess some of them – some of them graduated high school. Some of them didn't. Correct. But none of them went to college, right? I don't think so. I'd never read any college – Stuff. I'm sure that I they think didn't. that I'm sure that they didn't. I think that he was just like very into books and learning and all that type of stuff. So he kind of on his own took it, took the education like a step further. He's like an academic. Yeah. Okay. And then third in line, we have Otto Ringling, and he went by quote the king. He was the man of the money. He was smart, careful, and he also had a cutting edge brain. He thought of like a bunch of new and innovative ideas to help the Ringlings get out ahead of their competition. In 1903, he realized that all of the metropolitan cities were like growing really, really fast, and it was getting increasingly harder every single year to find like big empty plots of land to hold the circus close to the city or in the city and so he proposed to his brothers that they would purchase 15 acre lots near every city in america i feel so bad for him they his brothers did not take him up on this idea but it was such a good idea they would have made so much freaking money off of that like that is insane honestly crazy but anyway this is the same time when Ford and J.P. Morgan, right? Yeah, and all this is of like, that is like the the men who built America times. Yes, are they seen as that level of Bloody FM presents hometown ghost stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. I think like one tier lower, but pretty much, yes. Like they... They, they were ended that up, famous. Yes, they ended up monopolizing the circus industry and the circus dynasty, and it was a huge industry at the time. Like, it was basically the entertainment industry. They were huge. They were huge. They were household names, for sure. So, Otto, the king, never married, and he actually always lived with Alf T and his family when he wasn't out on the road with the circus when he would come back home. And then we get to Alf T, the one that he lived with. He was the fourth brother, and he was in charge of public relations. He was so successful, actually, in his advertising and in the media that the railroads had to start sending special trains from every part of the country on circus day. It's like holiday times, you know, Mm -hmm. whenever you pull in like extra shifts and stuff. They had extra trains going on circus day in each little town anytime the circus would come to get everyone to the shows because his advertising was so effective. He was also in charge of squashing the competition. He played offense and defense, basically. Next, we have Charles. He's the fifth born. He was like the physical on-site manager kind of of the brothers. So he was in charge of logistics when moving the actual army of people and animals and equipment over thousands of miles every night for six months every season. They didn't have like off days much. They were performing, packing up, sleeping in the train, setting up the next day, performing, packing up, sleeping It's on like the train. going on tour when yeah. you're an artist. So Charles was over the trains and he essentially was the general manager. So if you had a complaint or you had you needed to take off or you needed to do whatever, you would go to Charles for all of that he stuff. He coordinated everything. Yeah. Yes. And then he also kept with him what they called his book of wonders, a notebook in which he was constantly writing down any little thing that he saw that needed attention. So during the winter months, he would just hand it over to his brothers and they would make purchases, repairs, implement new ideas, all that type of stuff that Charles had written down during the season. So as soon as the circus began traveling by railroad, because Think about this. They were literally going by horseback and carriage. Those poor horses. Yeah. I also want to know, like, if the horses that were in the show were also the horses that were, like, uh, probably legging everything around. 
Oh no, that makes me really sad. I mean, maybe they enjoyed it. Maybe they're like little worker bees, and they yeah. they liked having. That's how I envision sled dogs. And also, that gives context. Think about what time period this is. Mm-hmm. Within decades, it goes from you can't really leave your hometown or like the ten mile radius because horses are your only option for transportation. And then railroads, and then cars, and then it's just like Planes everything explodes. And then railroads go away, and it's really only used for, like... Radio goes away, TV comes about. It's so creepy to think about. I just can't get over the fact that the Disney story seems worlds away from this story, and they're literally right here at this same moment when railroads are coming about into the mm-hmm. yes into the equation and it also shows you why walt was so obsessed with railroads because it really did change america and we just can't understand what a big deal it was yeah i know like what is that for our generation i also think about like, the iphone <laughs> how tv live television is literally phased out in our generation yeah almost. like kids are watching youtube they're they're streaming like they are not watching just live tv so john is the one who is in charge of routing. He's the sixth in birth order. He was a re- part of the original five circus brothers. And, and arguably he's like the second most interested, right? Exactly. In the circus life. It's like uh, Al is the circus man, but John is the entrepreneur. Mm. Like John is interested in the business and he kind of just was going to be a hardcore successful entrepreneur in whatever. And he just kind of applied his interests to and and his skills to Al's dream, you know? Mm-hmm. So he's the pot and pan cleaner salesman. Yes, the one who ran away at 12 years old. Yes. So this routing job was super detail heavy because he had to plan out the exact time and whereabouts of the four train, 100 car caravan in coordination to dozens of railroads and hundreds of branch lines and make sure that they weren't going to crash into another train. That is just not a job that I would think that like a bit like a, a they, smaller business. One of their like the, owners was yeah. like assigned to that. You'd think you'd hire out a company. Hire out a company or like just the government was like running the railroads. Yeah. Like, or like, yeah, exactly. Do you know like what I mean? The railroad lines, would ju- you would go to them. And they would just coordinate it for you. Why yeah. in the world is this side It's company? the wild, wild west. I don't know. Everything's Apparently. new and you just... Because they yourself. owned their trains. So really they were only using the tracks. But you know still. What I, mean? I don't know. Crazy. I but wonder anyway. actually if planes, like how those get coordinated. Is it like one overhead overarching, making sure that all the different plane companies are not going to crash there into each other? To be, right? Yeah, because how is an individual just like side company supposed to make Coordinate sure with that all of the yeah other random companies? There has to be. And back then, how did they get all that freaking information? You know what I mean? <laughs> like that just sounds like the hardest job ever. It does. And he was eventually so familiar with it because it was so demanding that he could tell you exactly where to get from anywhere in the U.S., to anywhere else in the U.S. without looking anything up. Train time, junction points, connections, all right off the dome. Are you kidding? Like, that just doesn't sound like real life. That Insane. sounds crazy. Like, uh, he was like prodigy or something. Yeah. So anyway, it was his skillful routing of the circus that allowed them to avoid direct conflicts with their competitors and like staying away from circus dates of other uh, circuses and that in the same town. In later years, John also traveled to Europe and he scouted talent to hire because European circuses usually performed out of a permanent venue location instead of like a traveling tent situation like in America. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So the performers had a lot more rest, first of all, and a lot more time to learn, invent, and like practice new tricks. So it was Europe, like theater or something like Broadway. Yes, it was definitely like that. And so Europe was where the real talent was because they were dedicated to actually honing their craft rather than trying to just like get from place to place every night. And so if you were truly going to have the greatest show on earth, you had to hire the greatest performers on earth. And that was in Europe. So this is really cool too. I'm sorry, but we are just born and bred to be interested in history Mm -hmm. and sociology and all that. So the Ringling Circus actually became what people called the great unifier in America. 
there were all ethnicities, all languages, all races working together under the big top and in the sideshows and also in the audience because any and every person could enjoy watching it without a language barrier or it really didn't have much of a need to understand culture either because slapstick comedy is slapstick comedy right. you can kind of just understand shock that no and awe is shock and awe exactly yeah. so there were millions of immigrants arriving in the u.s at the time america right here like or the united states crazy what is happening right now everything's changing it's exploding actually 28 million people arrived in the u.s in just the 50 years between 1880 and 1930 can you imagine like what a time to be alive I would give anything to have like a day. Same, dude. Oh, in this go to era. go to Ellis Island and just people watch. Literally <gasps> see what it was actually like. But that was something that like a massive positive bonus and something that influenced culture and just society so much more than I ever would have realized was that the circus had a hand in like unifying, like yes. you said, all of culture, all races, all ethnicities, everyone could come together and like bond over that experience, which I think is so cool and like such a, I don't know, like not well known thing. No, I, I would have no never idea. Guessed. I just thought the circus was the circus, and I honestly looked down on the circus and was like, mm, yeah, that was a it's kind of trashy, weird, like trashy, bad ethics, like animal cruelty, grimy little, sketch. yeah, and like freak shows. Like, how is that kind? What like all of those types yep. of things. But in the documentary... Yeah, we watched a PBS documentary about the circus. About how it unified people, but also how it gave um, kind of like outcasts a place to belong. And you kind of see that and get a glimpse of that in The Greatest Showman, if you've seen that. How they were all the freaks of their Mm -hmm. family or the outcasts of their towns. A lot of them weren't able to get like normal jobs because because people weren't going to hire the bearded lady or... A midget. A midget or the albino. albino. Yeah, like they either looked weird, sounded weird whatever people were scared of them yeah and there was definitely more ability to like be prejudiced or to be Uh whatever it honestly probably might have been that first line of fire in breaking down prejudice against disabilities or differences right and And people are naturally scared or fearful of like what they don't know or what they haven't seen before and everyone is going to be curious if they see someone that they've never seen what they've looked like before and all of that kind of stuff but i don't know i think it's so interesting and Something that we should cre- yeah, the, give more the credit to. The circus needs a little bit of credit for that. Yeah. They also need some credit because at the time, it was also the best example of women's rights in the country. Women on the lot were treated equal to men. They earned salaries alongside their male co-stars. And they even had a performer, the Ringling Brothers did, called Lady Hercules. She was presented by the Ringling Brothers to be the pinnacle of femininity and strength in the same body, which was a groundbreaking idea at the mm-hmm. time. Her name was Katie Sandwina, and she was also the head of the Circus Suffragette Club. So, like we said, the circus hasn't really been that big of a deal in our lifetime, but in the 19th and early 20th centuries, it was literally the epicenter of culture, and it was kind of like a microchasm of what was actually going on in the country at the time. Don't get it, like, too twisted, because the Ringlings were still very traditional, and they didn't respect women and their opinions as much as they should have obviously but for their time they were very progressive from the way they were in their circus i think that they were good people and they were doing like the best with what they had just as or maybe more so respectful than anybody else at the time mm-hmm. honestly so and you always have to look at context like you have to look at the time exactly it was the 19th century like yeah even i don't know people coming for people in history it's like some of it is justified but also some of it like you have no idea how normalized and we're for sure in 30 years gonna look back on things that we think are so progressive and like kind now and we're gonna be like wow that was trash that we thought that way wow i knew nothing that we live that way yeah they're also you have to take into account like who they are And a lot of the qualities of a person that allows them to become successful are... The harsher qualities. Yes. And so they're ambitious businessmen. Like they were automatically going to be a little domineering and a little aggressive. So even that makes how respectful and kind they were even more impressive to me. Mm -hmm. Take it with a grain of salt, but... Nobody's perfect. They have their flaws, but but they were also trying. Yes, exactly. Another... 
interesting cultural detail really quick was that like i was saying it's like a microcosm of what's going on in the world the circus was also the very first place that a lot of people ever saw a light bulb ever saw a television or a movie at all like a motion picture even when it was just on a projector and it was always at the cutting edge of technology so they pushed the boundaries in every way that they could and it was often for these little tiny towns, the first exposure to like new things. So that's kind of also why the circus was such a big deal because if you couldn't afford to have a light bulb in your house, you wanted to go to the show and see one, you know? Mm -hmm. Okay, so this brings us to Henry and his job was pretty intense as well, which matched his demeanor. Like we said earlier, he was kind of like that sinister beetle-like mischievous boy. Yes, and he as was the all one babies are. as all babies are for sure and he was the <laughs> one who also struggled with alcoholism and he was in charge of manning the front door and ticket sales because remember from last episode they tried to send him out to do the routing and <laughs> he ran away <laughs> he, he went on a little wild adventure so this put him in charge of security buying tickets in this day and age was not like going to the movies now where you like walk up and you purchase a ticket from a nice man or woman behind the counter and they give you the exact price with no prejudice and that's just it is what it is it is what it is here it was a fend for yourself kind of situation so here's a little bit of context does anyone recognize the name pt barnum mm-hmm. if you watch the greatest showman he is painted as this like dreamer like amazing like he pushed the boundaries of culture and context and went from poverty to like the richest man whatever well inherently in someone like that they're gonna push every single boundary ever so he was basically american circus culture in a man like he had tons of influence over all of american circus you know what i mean Mm -hmm. he was a really tricky guy I honestly don't know how he got away with what he did, but he would put signs up at his circus that said like, to the aggress. And people would follow it not knowing what that word meant because they're Americans and assume that they were walking towards like some exotic sideshow or crazy thing that they were excited to see. An exhibit. Yes. And then they would end up outside once they followed all the signs and would have to pay another entry fee to get back in the circus that they <laughs> like an airport. see anything. Yeah, like they <laughs> you were- You go one door too far and you're screwed. <laughs> yeah. You have to do it all over again. You have to go back through security. Oh my gosh. So once it was explained to them by the circus employees what aggress meant- That it that meant, it meant exit. exit. Instead of being pissed, pissed off and furious like I would be, majority of them thought it was hilarious and they were like, oh, that's just like Barnum. How funny. And they were happy to pay another entrance fee. So they had like, it's just times have definitely changed. Can you yes. imagine now? He also charged people once for a viewing of a cherry colored cat. And when people went back to see it, all they found was just a common black cat. And they were like, oh, I thought that the cat that we were supposed to see was like special. This is the cat that Sally down the road has. Like, what in the world is going on? And they would demand an explanation. The attendant would respond, well, you know, some cherries are black. And they all apparently just thought that that was hilarious, got a kick out of it. And some would even go back into the main circus area and they would tell everyone, oh my gosh, have you seen the cherry-colored cat? It's a wonderful exhibit. And they would funnel people into the trick because i thought they they were like getting in on it oh my gosh that's hilarious i want to i want to be friends with these types of people like they they were just there for the jokes we're not taking life seriously at all so needless to say the circus world was very familiar with deception and trickery and this bled into all areas of circus life so this brings me to the tickets ticket sellers were not paid by the circus at all which is weird right like they're working for the circus that they don't get paid some even paid the circus for their job position and you know how they made their money how <laughs> by shortchanging the customers that was just the how norm. is that like a position that like was you so... literally know that you're see- yes what? it was so commonplace that that was literally how they made their money and obviously the management of the circus were down because they didn't have to pay the sellers wages at all They just gave them an opportunity to steal. Rip off people. The ticket seller's best trick was that they would act like they were giving the customers too much money back, too much change. They would use a little sleight of hand and count one or two of the 
bills once or twice. And when they were counting the change back to the customer, the customer would grab the money and rush away because they thought that they were getting too much money back and they wanted to take the money from the circus. And so they were like, I'm freaking hightailing it out of here because mm-hmm. they didn't want the teller to notice the mistake and then grab the money back. And they wouldn't realize that they were actually getting ripped off until the opportunity was long gone to fix it. And so... Wow, that's honestly so smart because they're literally like shoving it in their purse. They're not going to sit there and count it. Exactly. And like make a show of it. They're just like... Some of them probably never realized. in their pocket and ran away. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm sure most of them didn't because they watched with their eyes yes, get back too like, much money. And no one's thinking this person is doing a freaking magic trick in front of my eyes. Like right. just counting the freaking... You're just the ticket salesman. You're not a part of the show. The 1800s really seem just every man for himself. <laughs> Wild. Some circus owners would actually hire pickpockets to come and steal from people at their circus, and then they would split the winnings with the pickpocket at, at night. Over the <laughs> yeah, like what the world? Over the years, these petty crimes turned into organized theft and the black market, <laughs> basically. And a lot of times, like more than we would like to think about, the night would literally end in murder. <gasps> Nuh-uh. It was bad. The Ringlings believed that honesty was really just better business. And so they cracked down and started doing things very differently than the other circus shows. It was a never-ending battle, and most people thought that it was impossible to run a circus streamlined and clean-cut, but there were so many Ringling brothers that they were actually able to keep a lid on crime and change the culture at their circus. Historians suspect that this contributed more than they even realized to their circus's success. They earned themselves the nickname, quote, the Sunday School Circus, and they had strict rules for their staff as well. Why are you smiling? That's so cute. It is so cute. (laughs) I was like, what did I say wrong? (laughs) The Sunday School Circus. The Sunday School Circus. Their men could never visit the ballet girls, and even one conversation could get you into hot water with with the brothers employees couldn't drink or swear i think that they had to be so strict because the culture was so far the other way that if they didn't have they'd like overcompensate exactly so henry was the head of all of this and his stern demeanor lording over the grounds he was the biggest brother like we said he was like six three i think it was, he was the youngest though right he was the baby and he was the largest, largest. In stature yes and so he would just walk the grounds stand at the front door and so demand respect yes he was a little bit scary and that's likely one of the reasons that they ended up being so successful in cleaning their act up as well as we name all of these brothers it's like wow, he was so successful in what he did and he was so important in why they were successful. Alf killed the advertising and John killed the routing of, and it's just like, they were all so good at what they did. I don't know if they were just all very, very hardworking and detail-oriented people or... I definitely think that part of it has to do with like them being motivated enough to like get good at it and yeah. being hard workers. I'm assuming that they probably grew up with that mentality yeah mentality but i also think that because they started with this dream so young that they had so much time to just like really get good at one specific thing whereas i see in like our business and um us trying to do things together when we were running our businesses separately it was so hard to get good at any one thing because you're trying to do everything yourself yourself. Mm -hmm. especially when you're starting off as like a brand new entrepreneur you do have to have your hands kind of like dabbled in all of the different you just don't have the resources to hire people right and when you're like do it all when you're trying to do ten thousand jobs like you literally only have so much of yourself to give to each position Uh but because there were seven of them they could they could they could really focus and really dig in on one specific thing and like be the best at marketing or be the best at yeah like coordinating the trains and whatever instead of having to coordinate the trains and then also do the marketing and then also do the whatever right so i think that them starting them having so many of them and like being able to divvy from the very beginning responsibilities from the beginning yeah yeah, is huge that's because they had like a decade on everyone else yep so like we said the circus was a very taboo place before the ringling brothers cleaned it up and a lot of americans were literally scared to bring their families to such a controversial place they were like we don't know what we're gonna see yeah we don't know if we're gonna get robbed it's kind of like taking your family on like if you're from a to small vegas. town to vegas or uh-huh. like on the subways in new york like exactly. you think that everyone's like out to get your wallet hide your kids hide your wife <laughs> exactly 
the Ringling Brothers cleaned their circus up so much that they literally had pastors evangelizing for their show and vouching for the cleanliness of their circus. They were like telling their congregations, take your families to the Ringling Brothers. So the brothers took it a step further. They made it their mission to clean up the circus as a whole. And so they- The industry. Yes. So they started hiring extra security people to go over- to the other circuses and like patrol those grounds and try to like keep that crime at a minimum. Wow. Whatever that trait is where they just like assume responsibility for everything. In the first episode, again, like you said, the brothers sort of controlled the whole family, even like their little sister, their cousins, their nephews and nieces. They were not shy with inserting themselves. Yeah. It's like if they thought that that was the best thing, they they were going to do it. They didn't ask for permission Mm -hmm. and- them sending their own security to other grounds and like literally paying for that <laughs> and it's helping your competition like they're literally just taking control and they like just getting done it what better. needs to get done yeah, yeah. Um, somebody had to be an enneagram one the sad thing is they actually al- arrested a lot of thieves and actually were fighting crime really well at these other circuses and the other circus owners were freaking pissed about it i mean it's a little overstepping yeah. a little bit but They thought that if they could clean up the whole idea of the circus and change the perspective in America, it's like a, what is it? A rising tide lifts all ships? Yeah, something like that. I don't know. I don't know. know Whatever it is, you you get it. If they could get more of America interested in the circus, that's more business for everyone. for everyone. By 1900, the Ringlings had one of the largest traveling shows in America, next to one other infamous show. Okay, so we're going to be introducing a plot line that is very, very important to the Ringling story. Barnum and Bailey are probably familiar names to you. But if you don't know, in 1906, James Bailey died and he was P.T. Barnum's partner in his circus. And they were really like the big circus kings, even bigger than the Ringling Brothers in America at the time. They were like the first, they were the first circus kings. Mm-hmm. First P.T. Barnum, and then he ended up joining joining with. his circus with Bailey's Circus. We've already been referencing The Greatest Showman and all of that, and that is because we can't talk about the Ringling Brothers without talking about like the other huge players in the circus industry, and then they also kind of come into the Ringling Brothers' direct storyline in a little bit. So P.T. Barnum was already dead. James Bailey dies in 1906 and the whole entire dynasty goes to his widow. So she hired a new manager to operate and travel with the show as her husband had whenever he was living and uh, things did not go so well. She telegraphed John Ringling and asked if he would like to have the job as manager of her circus. Like he, she wanted to hire John to just come and manage her circus. And so he took it to his brothers and they decided to refuse the offer probably hoping that what happened next would be another option. 1907 wasn't a great year for American finances overall, so the Barnum & Bailey Circus continued to lose money like pretty rapidly because of the circumstances of Bailey dying, but also because of just the economics going on in America at the time. So their stock price plummeted to just 85 cents a share. And wouldn't you know... (laughs) John Ringling began buying up as much as he could get his hands on. Of the stock? Yep. Oh my gosh. Again, he was the most ambitious of the brothers for sure business-wise, but also kind of just every area of life. And so he had the mindset of Rockefeller, Vanderbilt, Carnegie, kind of like we talked about earlier, those industrial giants of his age. Mm -hmm. And they each had monopolies of their industries. And so he's like, you know what I'm seeing in my future? A monopoly of the circus industry. And I don't want you to get twisted. Like they were already super successful on their own, but they did not have a monopoly over the industry like those other industrial giants did. And that's what he had his sights set on. They hadn't ever had a chance either to play the greatest city in America or the crown jewel venue of the U.S. You have to know where. Madison Square Garden. MSG, baby. I'm sorry, but there's like literally truly nowhere better than New York City. I have to agree with Like you have made it. The Barnum and Bailey Circus operated out of New York City. That's kind of where their hub was. If you watch The Greatest Showman, you'll see it's crazy, but they stored like their animals. Everything, everything was in the, in the city. city. Yeah, that's crazy, crazy that there was enough. I room mean, the for city that. was so different. It was a baby, back then, but still, still crazy. That 
kind of makes sense the the different markets that they kind of had. Yes. So the Ringling, the Ringling Brothers were, very, were huge. They just had a different they were niche Midwest. Or market. Yeah. They were all over the Midwest mm-hmm. and probably more of the West Coast. Yeah. And Barnum and Bailey were like the city kids. Yes. So they obviously since that was like their hub, they had their thumb on New York City and the only venue worth playing in in New York City was Madison Square Garden and so that since they couldn't ever get a show there they just never bothered trying to tour New York City because like why would you yeah that summer the stock market completely crashed so bad that the ringlings had to rush money to the bank of Baraboo so that it wouldn't go under because the bank was in danger of going under so in the midst of her panic John Ringling began negotiations with Bailey's widow and in 1907 The Ringlings bought the Barnum & Bailey Circus, their largest competitor, at a very, very reasonable price. Emotional business decisions are never a good idea. It makes me cringe, but when John brought it to the brothers, originally they were all super hesitant to take such a big risk. Especially if the economy is not doing well. Right. So it might have honestly been the only way that she was going to get their help or get it off of her hands anyway, because it was a sinking ship. She wasn't making money off of it. She was losing equity day by day by day. So maybe it was just good for her to get it off of her hands anyway. Like maybe I shouldn't feel so bad for her, but Otto was for it and they all respected his judgment. And so he was ultimately the one that got them to all go through with it after John proposed the idea. Here are some figures for you. The Ringling Brothers bought the greatest show on earth, the Barnum and Bailey Circus, for $410,000 in 1907. Still a pretty penny. Like that's 1907 money. It sounds mm-hmm. like still quite a bit of money. I looked it up and $100 in 1907 would be worth $2,094.29 now. So... That means that they paid equivalent to almost $12 million for that circus in the middle of an economic crisis. She's fine. That lady is fine. Yeah. (laughs) But, oh, get this. The profits, not the total revenue, the actual take-home profits of that circus just from the very next year alone paid for the entire Barnum & Bailey circus. (laughs) Wait, so when they one year later. When they first purchased it, they immediately combined the entire circus? No, or they were just owned, just they just owned the Barnum, the Barnum and Bailey, Bailey circus. circus. Yes. <gasps> the Barnum and Bailey Circus profits from them running it for a year, just the profits from that circus, not the Ringling Circus, paid for itself. Wow. Speaking of stealing and steals of a deal, the Ringling Brothers actually didn't wait until they had purchased the Barnum & Bailey Circus to start using that slogan, the greatest (laughs) show on earth. They began using that phrase a couple of years before there was any talk of them purchasing the show at all. Oh my gosh. When Bailey that, was, that is called manifestation. Exactly. They were Bailey, just assuming ownership of you it. You know what? I see in our future, we're going to be the greatest show on earth. So let's just advertise <laughs> let's it. Let's just call it like it is. After acquiring the Barnum & Bailey Circus, the Ringling Brothers were officially the circus kings. They kept touring, like we said, as two separate shows. So the Barnum & Bailey Circus and then the Ringling Brothers Circus. But behind it, behind the, the like publicity, they, they owned it all. Al and Charles ran the Ringling Brothers Circus, and then John, Alf, T, and Otto ran the Barnum train. And then by the 1910s, the Ringling Brothers had more than 1,000 employees, 335 horses, 26 elephants, 16 camels, and a bunch of assorted other animals. And they traveled on 92 rail cars when you looked at both of those circus shows together. Oh, no, 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 no. That's just the Ringling Brothers Circus. Oh. The Barnum and Bailey Circus was roughly the same size. So two of those circuses touring and they owned all of it. That would be so much fun, honestly. I think that that type of hustling, workaholism, whatever you want to call it, would be, I mean. Yeah, you just like get to fully immerse yourself and that's like your only job is just to, yeah. Hence probably why they didn't have a ton of kids. Half of them were million, (laughs) like they were millionaires and like didn't own homes. Yeah. They're like, they're like living with their siblings. They have billions of dollars in the bank. They're like, can I crash on your couch? Yeah, they're like, so while I'm not working for two weeks. Honestly, at that point, I would just freaking live in a hotel. Yeah. Give me the freaking penthouse at the plaza. And I'm good to go. Yes. Get some freaking room service. 
So in their downtime and off seasons, each brother developed their hobbies. Alf T practiced his music. Charles became an avid fisherman and picked up an interest in sports. Second to collecting violins, though. That, to me, is such a funny picture. Like, he's like a violin collector, but also an avid fisherman. (laughs) Otto amassed a library of fine books, every one of which he read. Unfortunately, his interest in food contributed to an early death. He used to wake up in the morning and eat a large sirloin steak for breakfast. <laughs> they he, were all such weirdos. Yes, like, they, they did not deny themselves a good time. They, they were, weren't high maintenance or no, like crazy. They like, were trust fund fully kids. circus people. They were weirdos, but yeah, they just liked what they liked and like they didn't really care. Henry was a reader as well, and he was the biggest homebody of all the brothers. He's the one that was the baby of the family. John was the only one who never really settled down, especially not in Baraboo. He's the one that ran away a bunch as a kid, and he really did not like Baraboo. He kind of hated it. That's like one of the, I don't know, so interesting to me, like the psychology behind personalities and nature versus nurture and you just you are who you are kids like that where it's like you can tell their entire future from the get-go like Mm -hmm. at 12 years old he was like running away (laughs) being a salesman yeah you could just project his he only entire life from that point yeah he really only progressed in those characteristics yeah he went further financially geographically and culturally than any other brother and he was the one who would take trips over to europe to scout the talent and he and his wife actually studied high class manners and art and they became very high society themselves which was a totally different world for both of them the ringling brothers i mean they lived in a little tiny house with no plumbing in a small little midwestern town that nobody knew about they were not wealthy at all and then his wife was a shoe factory worker and she was scraping pennies her whole life as well so this was like i guess something that they were just very uh passionate about and prided themselves in. in yeah because it was not something that they had ever been exposed to before a lot of historians actually say that the ringlings came up not the hard way but the impossible way Despite his far-reaching travels, his contrasting interests from his brothers and his, for lack of a better word, hatred of their hometown, John was a family man. He came home every year for Christmas and joined everyone at their parents' house, except for one year back in 1907. This was right around the time that they were purchasing the Bailey Circus. He wasn't going to make it back until mid-January because they were, you know... That, that transition was, I'm sure, a huge undertaking. So his mother did... Exactly what I would do. She just postponed Christmas. They were not having Christmas without a single member of the family. So she decreed that this year, January 16th, 1908, was going to be Christmas Day, 1907. That's so crazy that there are so many of them and they're all still so close. Yeah. I feel like that would be harder. I don't know. Part of me thinks that that would be harder to, like, easier for kids to fall through the cracks when there are so many of them. And they they also started working so young and, like, were running away and stuff. You wouldn't think that a family would that started out with like runaway 12 year olds would still be so close as full grown Mm -hmm. adults that had their own thing going massive careers you know what i hadn't thought about this at all but it requires an acceptance of who each person is Mm -hmm. you cannot expect people to be who they aren't and you are able to stay close when you can love whoever they actually are and not Love the idea of them. Yes. Want them to be who you want them to be in order to love them. Yes. Cassie and I are huge on expectations and not necessarily that like high expectations will just like lead to disappointment, but your subconscious, maybe you're not even aware of them. Those expectations are never going to be met by someone. And like you said, you have to just love people for who they are. Who they actually are. And not who you want them to be yes. or expected them to be or just thought that they might be. Or and life is so much more beautiful when you can do that, I will yes. say. Even with your parents, who you think your parents should be or what a good parent is if you're trying or to shove someone th- into a box Yeah, like who that. you thought that they were as a kid. like you Or just, what you needed. As you grow up and you gather more information about who people actually are you've got to readjust mm-hmm. you just constantly pivot and that's why communication and just like fighting honestly and all of the like the ringling brothers always had family interventions and like massive yeah. meetings that they would just hash everything out in uh-huh. that's probably a huge reason too why they stayed so close is that they didn't let anything go unsaid they weren't constantly just shoving things under the rug like they would just hash it out and then agree to move on from there. Mm-hmm. When you have all of these subconscious expectations and like unsaid 
things that you need to hash out, but you're or not. Or if your expectations are too rigid. Yes. Then, like black and white. Yeah. It's it's impossible for people to fit into that or to meet, to live up to it. Mm-hmm. And you're, you'll always be disappointed. You'll grow bitter. And so, yeah, you're right. That, that doesn't make sense that because they were all so weird in a sense and like they very all individual each people. other to just be who they were. Yeah. Even, um, the one who, uh, was it Henry who was an alcoholic yeah. and like stole their money basically. They just like, kind they, of tailored his job to fit him. Yeah, exactly. Huge. That is a huge lesson. They were married to the person, not their expectations of what that person, person was be. supposed to be. Yeah. Huge. Honestly, let us just solve all your problems. You know what? (laughs) (laughs) Gus had actually already passed away at this point by Christmas, January 16th, 1908. Um, (laughs) And we'll we'll get into that. But that evening when they had their Christmas celebration back at their parents' house, all of her surviving seven children and their families gathered at that home that they had bought for their parents' when they first started becoming successful, which is, I think, super cool, too. And they had a loud, argumentative, joyous Christmas, just like always. And later that night, Mother Ringling died in her sleep. What? That sounds like not real. A movie or something. Yeah. She she was literally holding on until John came back home. She was waiting to say goodbye. Oh, that makes me That's crazy how much, like, your your heart and your brain can – how much power yeah like she was literally she had determined like in her mind that that was going to be christmas january 16th and she and needed she was, her whole family together yes. just one last time <gasps> their family situation and dynamics wasn't all butterflies and rainbows though the family solidarity had an ugly side as well when ida married a man her family didn't approve of not a single ringling spoke a word to her for an entire year Oh my gosh. And Ida is the baby, the true baby of the family. The true baby and the only girl. It was pretty dramatic. They had nothing against him personally, which is, I think, hilarious. They actually all loved him. But Henry North had been divorced before. And so whether it was his fault or not, in the 1800s and early 1900s, that was a He was not good enough for their sister. It was a scarlet letter. (laughs) So in trying to appease her family, she got engaged to someone else before she married him. Because they were all like, no, 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 that's not allowed. And so on the morning of her wedding to the other person, Henry North, like with champagne and gifts everywhere, shows up, stole her away, and married her in Chicago. Oh, my God. Also sounds like a movie. Her family did not speak to her again until her first son was born. Okay, but that's a little different than just marrying someone that was divorced. The way that it happened, yeah. I'm sure, like, added fuel to the fire. Yeah, for sure. Just stole her on her wedding day, and they just got married. And I'm sure none of the family was there at that wedding. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, you're, it was definitely, like, an, an elopement situation. I'd be a little pissed. Yeah. Probably but wouldn't not talk to someone for a year over exactly. it, but I would definitely be holding on to it for a minute. Yeah. But, of course, they are family people. So when she had her first kid, they were like, all right, all right, all bets are off. Let's, yeah. <laughs> we have to be there. And actually, that is that baby that was born is the older brother of the nephew that wrote the book, Circus Kings. That was like one of the closest kids yes, to everyone. Yes, they were very – like once they accepted her back in, she was back in. They were so enmeshed <laughs> that <laughs> yeah. you couldn't really tell whose kid was who. Exactly. On April 4th, 1911, Otto became the first of the official circus partners to go. He was in New York with the Barnum and Bailey show at the time, but he was shipped back to Baraboo to be buried at Al's house, that house with Lou that they all kind of came back to in those early years. And it was directly across the street from the little frame house that he was born in. They were very, very much like loyal hometown boys. Oh, I love that. There was no circus that day. Both shows canceled all performances and every living brother gathered in their hometown to be together and say goodbye to the king. Mm. This is just like a side note, but I cannot imagine like with those big life events, like with their mom died, Mm -hmm. then two of their brothers so far have died, not being on speaking terms with my family members or just feeling like it's like when you go back to Christmas and you see your like second cousin or whoever and it's like, yeah. wow, we used to know each other and now oh. we have – I have no idea like what you're really doing with your life or like what's going on on the day-to-day whatever. It's weird. 
I can't imagine. Like, that's so cool that they were so close till the end. Even as their family is dwindling. Yep. Like, they all still have each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I cannot imagine just showing up to a funeral or a wedding or whatever it is and feeling like I don't know my siblings. So let's just be a little PSA. If you, if even a little part of you wants to get closer to your siblings or wishes you were better friends with one of your siblings or your parents, even your cousins, whoever it is in your family, it is so worth it. Even if it's awkward at the beginning to be like, hey, sister, I know we're not that close and we don't really like each other, but like I kind of want to be friends or to your brother-in-law or whoever it is, even your parent, your mom, like, hey, I want to, I want to move in a better direction or a more positive direction yeah. in our relationship, even if you're freaking 50 years old, like I don't think it's ever too late. And it's better at the, like these types of stories where you're hearing about people losing their loved ones. It just like makes it so real to you. Mm-hmm. And it's better to hurt together than hurt because you didn't because of regret or yeah. like you allowed bitterness or you allowed missed expectations to get in the way of a lifetime or even just a few years yeah. of love and friendship. And every single relationship is going to have ups and downs issues and toxic traits. It's just <laughs> like they're, they're people. Also, PSA, we are not talking about anything serious or abuse or anything like that. Please protect yourself. But if it's just like things that were said missed or, expectations yeah, yeah like little that. arguments that didn't need to there's always an opportunity for reconciliation and growth so don't miss out even if you just need to like say your piece or extend the olive branch if they don't take it then that's totally fine like you can at least feel like okay well i tried or i did due yeah. diligence and that will help you feel better in those big family events or big also, life events. Also, I think that people really can change, so give them the opportunity, you know? Yeah, there are some people that you can just leave the door open to, and there are obviously others that you have to kind of like for yourself and your own mental health or your well-being close that door for good, but there are also a lot of times that you can leave that door open and just know that, hey, this person might be flaky or this person might not ever be the person who I needed them to be or wanted them to be and you can be okay with that and still have a a little bit more distance relationship but still a relationship yeah so this family like you said with the whole enmeshment thing this family was so much just a family gig that until 1932 the Ringling Brothers Circus was not even a corporation it was just an agreed partnership between loyal brothers. Shut up. They didn't even have like signed agreements. <gasps> Full on. So as one by one they begin to pass away, they would just literally make a settlement with their heirs, with their family, and then they'd carry on with the business. Oh my Yeah, gosh. they were just like... Even Cassie and I have like signed documents. <laughs> yeah. We, oh my gosh, with the whole expectations thing, we're like, let's... Let's just make sure that there are no fights in the future. (laughs) Oh, and I think that partly maybe this was because they wanted to make sure as people died that nobody but the brothers had shares in the company or like a say in what went on. So they would just kind of pay people off and keep making the like circle of influence smaller and smaller. So since Otto had no descendants, they dispersed his shares among themselves. <laughs> so they made Henry a partner finally. Because remember I oh said. Oh my gosh. Yes. He just now. They be, yes. Oh, they were like. Wow. We're going to take care of you. But we don't trust you. So. We, such, we love you. But we don't trust you. They're such control freaks. Yeah. But honestly. I mean. They did take them? care of people. Like. Yeah. Like uh, the quote from the nephew in the. In episode one. Where he said like. They dominated the They dominated the, yeah, they Mm -hmm. dominated the family. They dominated the city. But they also took care of everyone. Like, they just assumed the responsibility. And even though it probably wasn't, like, the healthiest way to do that, they had probably good intentions. Mm -hmm. That's what I was kind of saying with the whole women's rights and all of that. I don't think that they were perfect by any means. But it's like, you have to just see people in a realistic light. You know, Mm -hmm. they are who they are. Let's yes. someone who is everything through, you know what I mean? Yeah, someone who is really motivated by career advancement and entrepreneurship. And they saw people as much as they probably Yeah, could. it honestly is crazy how loyal they still were and how much 
they prioritized like even the the town their hometown's economy right. and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. So even though they made Henry a partner in Otto's place and they gave him all of Otto's shares, he couldn't exactly fill the void left by the king. Like in his actual job role, he wasn't incompetent. It was just that Otto had the most financial intelligence and the most experience and Henry just didn't have enough to fulfill what Otto had left behind. Yes. And so John inevitably ended up taking over the finances, which made him more dominant over the Ringling Dynasty than he had ever been. Though each brother had a voice, after Al died in 1916, it was pretty much the John show as the Ringlings were expanding their empire. His brothers were content to grow slowly and surely, but John had been running all his life and he had zero interest in stopping. He loved money more than anything, with the potential exception of his art collection and maybe his wife. But because of his ego and his aggression, he kind of forced all of his brothers to go along with what he wanted to do. Mm -hmm. His business ventures didn't stay confined to the circus either. Opportunity is opportunity. So he owned businesses all over the U.S. and he actually even dabbled in building some railroads on the side. Little side hustle. How did this kid have time for all of that? Honestly. Also, prior to them actually making like contracts and stuff and writing down on paper like who owned what and what legacy was whose, how did they even have like bank accounts to venture off and do these random little things like did they literally just like ask their brothers like hey I can i know, use some of our to be honest some of our family bank account to- john is the one who literally stole the entire bankroll from the side circus that he joined as a kid remember oh yeah yeah. and before he ran away to and Chicago then his dad or saved it rescued him yeah so I don't know. A little sus. They're like how they're all just very like they left the door open for a lot of bad stuff to happen. So it's kind of shocking that they didn't all fall out. How did they not all end up hating each other before they died? I don't like and I feel like we have like the most resiliency in our relationship, the best coping skills. Like we are set up for success. And I don't even know (laughs) once you're married and have kids and like how did they not start arguing about that kind of stuff like severely to where it would ruin their relationship? You would think with most people that that would happen. The only thing that I think saved them, like their saving grace, was that none of them were really that obsessed with money. Like they all were motivated more so by control and by yeah. being entrepreneurs. Like they wanted to do what they wanted to do. Right. They weren't so obsessed with like just being the richest. Just the financial, yeah. They weren't all greedy. Yes and no. Like mm, I don't want to say too much, but – That is definitely how all seven brothers were when they were all alive. But as the family kind of started to dwindle, it gets a little messy and a A little little bit sad. A little hairy. So we'll talk about that in length and detail in episode three. So get ready for that. Okay, so let's rewind just a second because I casually mentioned that Al died in 1916. But I want to go ahead and give him his moment. It was a very sad occasion that brought all the Ringling family back to Baraboo. Most were in Florida. They had built homes there because, hello, the weather pretty different from Wisconsin. (laughs) But when Al Ringling died on New Year's Day 1916, everybody rushed back home. He had been their equestrian director since the very first show in Baraboo all the way up through the summer before his death. And while his brothers branched out financially and socially and they had other business ventures. He remained a working circusman until the very end. It was his dream and it was the catalyst for his death too. On May 25th, 1914, there was a fire at a lumber yard just a few blocks away from where the Ringling Brothers Circus was performing. The burning embers drifted through the air and rained down on the circus grounds. It took nine hours to extinguish the flames, and by the time Al had gotten everyone out of the big top and all of the animals to safety, most of the train cars had been destroyed. He was stubborn, and he spent the next 40 hours borrowing train cars, calling people, traveling to the next stop, and directing two shows the next day without a minute of sleep. The stress on his body from those two days caused him to develop Bright's disease and a heart condition. The toll it took on his immune system, paired with the stress that his brothers say he was always under, led to his death just two years later. Man. According to all involved, the main guy died that day. Everyone who knew him was heartbroken. What a legacy. They loved him, and he was like the dad to everybody on the circus grounds. Everybody on the lot was like, that's the main guy. 
I am so envious of people who spend and just have the the guts, the determination, the motivation to spend their whole lives working for one particular thing. Like I feel like your legacy, like you said, is so much more widespread and distinct and powerful rooted when it's all about like one thing yeah it's pretty cool so cool and it's so cool that he literally got to see his dream come to fruition and he got to share it with his favorite people on the earth yeah he literally like made it possible for his whole family to run a business together yeah like without him without his dream without his vision Uh uh-huh he they probably all would have just gone off and done their own things and for sure yeah he kind of was that glue for the family and he even his wife he brought straight into the family like she was kind of like the the pseudo mom Mm -hmm. yeah for everybody and he kind of made even a bigger family too because he with all these employees and stuff just expanded their family out to all the circus people and Mm -hmm. she was even said to be like the circus mom to all of the ladies out on the road and i don't know it's just pretty cool that he yeah, he, he kind of facilitated all of that he was definitely like a quintessential like oldest yeah. brother mm-hmm. oldest sibling. he definitely you can see like a sense of responsibility in him to provide and take care of the people in his life pretty cool that is going to be it for episode two and episode three is when it all goes down. <laughs> oh my gosh. When the, the drama really You will up. cry. You will be seething with anger. You will be nostalgic and there's heartfelt moments. There's horrible moments in episode three. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, the third episode is already loaded in your app. We will see you there. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. And please, please give us a rate and review because we are a baby podcast and it helps us be found by other people who want to hear stories. Bye.